Well, now that most of you have filtered back in from the food area, I can tell you, Happy Father's Day! There you go, there you go. Whether you're a father by blood or by spirit or by adoption, this is a good day. It's a good day to celebrate fathers. And because it's Father's Day, I don't normally do this. I'm not a big sports guy, right? I like to play sports. I don't like to watch sports. But I thought I would include a sports analogy in my sermon just for you sports guys out there. It's, it's not every day that something big, momentous, happens in the sports world, right? Something that just ripples through the nation, ripples through the world sometimes. But recently, something has happened. We've been missing it for a couple of years, but it came back to us. Just two weeks ago, on Sunday, June 5th, cheese rolling is back. <laughs> cheese rolling! I'm talking about double Gloucester cheese wheel rolled down a 200 meter hill, 50% incline, chasing after that cheese, falling down, cheese rolling. <laughs> There's your sports analogy. COVID couldn't hold us down. Renowned cheese chasing champion Chris Anderson. He's 34, he won his 23rd cheese race in 15 years. He said it was his final event since becoming a dad during the pandemic. I heard something about a local basketball team too. But... <laughs> cheese rolling, right? <laughs> All right, enough about that. Let's get to why we're really here. Today we're going to be looking at the Old Testament. I promised you we would move to an Old Testament book after we finished Galatians. We finished Galatians. Now we're in the Old Testament, and we are going to be looking at First Samuel. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna tear into First Samuel just a little bit today. Um, but if you would turn there now, 1 Samuel, uh, we're going to start in verse 1. If you forgot your Bible running out the door, uh, you want a copy of God's Word, just raise your hand. And somebody back there. I think it was around here somewhere. Anybody need a Bible? Okay, we're good. We're good. Okay. Uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verse 1. I apologize if that intro was a little cheesy, but... Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> How to do it. How to do it. Right? Dad jokes, it's Father's Day. <laughs> All right, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. I'm going to start 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man from Rathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, and the son, he was the son of Jerome, Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoth, an Ephraimite. Gotta apologize to my sign language interpreter here. That was a lot. <laughs> Let us catch up. Okay, good. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the, the name of the other was Peninnah. <laughs> I practiced that this week. I swear I practiced that. Uh, and Peninnah, Peninnah, we're gonna go with that. Had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were present to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give uh, portions to Penina, there we go, I got it, Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because... The Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year 
As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Let's pray. Lord, we pray as Daniel prayed, saying, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Amen. You may be seated. Well, here we are. We're in the Old Testament. And since we didn't start at the beginning of the Old Testament, and we're certainly not at the end of the Old Testament, we're kind of right smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament here, I wanted to, I thought it would be profitable for us to do just a quick 20,000-foot over, overview of, of the books leading up to Samuel to kind of help us grasp the state of Israel, what, what they were going through at that moment. Because it's, it's difficult when you just read a little itty-bitty passage uh, to really fully understand the context of that passage if you don't know what's going on around that passage. So today we're going to do that, that quick overview. Then I want to open uh, just a touch on the opening of, of, of 1 Samuel there. We're going to go because it's Father's Day, with a little bit of a male perspective there. Normally, when pastors preach on this, they're going to focus on Hannah. Uh, but I want to look at Elkinah. And so we're going to look at him, and he's going to give us uh, a few things that fathers we can do on uh, Father's Day and every other day, for that matter. Next week, we'll focus on Hannah, and we'll get started there. So first, let's buckle up and do a little bit of flying here. First Samuel is the ninth book of the Old Testament. Right? It's preceded by Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Um, it is a book. Uh, it, sorry. Sometimes it tells the story through narrative, through uh, legal documents, and sometimes even through poetry. Right. And it's important that we understand when we're reading what we're reading. Uh, the the the, the Type of writing that we're reading. When we were up at camp, we talked about uh, I, I talked about Psalm one. Psalm, all of the Psalms for that matter, uh, are poetry, right? So you can expect when you read that you're going to read things that are, are metaphors, right? So if I said uh, my head was like a shiny egg, right? You wouldn't think that my head was literally an egg. You just know it's shiny because there's no hair up there, right? So that's poetry. So it's important to know what kind of, of uh, uh, writing that we're reading there. The Bible also contains history, right? But it's not a history book. I'll give you a good example of that. Judges, right? It tells us about the time of the, you're gonna, never going to believe this, the judges, right? In Israel. And what it, what it does is it highlights the uh, corruption and the sin that was going on. Every, every story in there is meant to show the consequence of not following God's law. Right? It's not a history book. It's not gonna. It's not gonna tell us, uh, you know, what the fashion was back then. But it is gonna tell us what the consequences of sin are through history. Right. And so uh, it, it focuses on uh, the chaos that occurred because the Israelites wouldn't obey the commandments given in the prior books: Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we need to remember that the Bible is God's word. Therefore, the Bible tells us what God wants us to know, right? It, it, it's written perfectly and without error, 
2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. There are some out there that say, uh, there's a specific pastor I'm thinking of that says, we need to unhitch the Old Testament. We, we, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. We've got the New Testament. That's all that matters. Right? That's not true. Paul tells us right there, all scripture is inspired by God. That's profitable. So let's get started. In the beginning, we see Genesis, right? We read the only eyewitness account of creation. We see God's perfect will being done. We see harmony in creation. We see Adam and Eve come into that harmony, and, and it's good for a while, but then they break it. Sin enters the world. And in chapter 3, uh, verse 15, we see the first promise of a Savior. Right? He's, he, he says, you're going to crush the snake's head, but you will bite your heel. That is our, our first indication of a Savior there. And we pick up that thin red, red thread that just kind of weaves through the Bible. That is Jesus. And it starts in Genesis, and it weaves all the way through the Bible, all the way to Revelation, when he's sitting on his throne, and, and in judgment, and then eventually in heaven, right? Um, as Genesis progresses, we see the effect of sin, with the very first murder of Abel by his brother Cain. We see the world descend into sin-driven uh, chaos, until God finds only one righteous man. Out of the whole world, he finds one righteous man. We're getting there. We're not... We're, we're, not there yet, but it feels like it sometimes. And, and, and he, he, what he does is he wipes out the world, saving that one righteous family. And they, they repopulate the world. And as they repopulate the world, his descendants decide they're going to build a tower to heaven because they want to get to heaven on their own power. And God comes down and confuses their language and spreads them out. And through all of that, he picks one man, Abram. He picks Abram, and he brings him down to Israel, changes his name to Abraham, and promises to bless all future generations through him. We read a little bit about him when we studied in Galatians. And Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob was a little bit of a devious guy, right? He stole the birthright from his older brother, and his older brother got mad, and he was the muscles, and Jacob wasn't quite so muscular, right? So he ran because he was scared. And he ran to the promised land. And when he got there, we see God change his name from Jacob to Israel, which is where we get the name of the nation, right? Israel. Uh, Jacob's now in Israel. He's going to have a son named Joseph. Joseph's going to be mistreated by his brothers. He's going to go to Egypt. God will raise him up to the second most powerful man in the world. Right? And, the, and he'll bring the, the uh, Israelites down to Egypt to multiply them. At the time when they come down, there's only about 70 of them. Right? He will multiply them into a nation of millions. And th this is the point where the Egyptians get scared of them. And we see in Exodus where the Egyptians try and and, and keep them down and oppress them. And then we see Moses and Aaron come in and, and God brings plagues on, on Egypt and through all of that he convinces Pharaoh to let his people go and the, the Israelites leave Egypt and they head towards the promised land. And we see God protect them when, when Pharaoh changes his mind and he sends his army after them and God opens up the Red Sea and they walk through and then the, the Egyptian army comes in and the sea closes in on them. We see uh, in, in Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Oh, I don't want to skip this, though. In, in Exodus, we also see uh, the first form of law, the Ten Commandments. Right? And we see the tabernacle. This is where God's going to dwell with man on earth. Right? God is going to come down and dwell with man on earth. And then we move to Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we see God enacting more civil law and more <laughs> ceremonial law. 
and it's going to add to the, the moral law of the Ten Commandments in Exodus. And we watch as Israel kind of stumbles through the desert, and they whine, and they complain, we don't like, we don't like this food, we want this food, we don't have water, blah, blah, blah. And they make it all the way to the promised land, and they get there, and you remember the story, uh, they, they, they send some spies in, 12 spies in, and they, they have to carry the grapes out. Two dudes have to carry the grapes, because the bunches are so big, they carry them on their shoulders, right? Huge grapes, I can't imagine. And, and, and they get there, and, and two of those guys say, we need to go now. That place is awesome. We got to go. But the other 10 say, we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. We're like grasshoppers. There's no way we could take this, this nation. And so the whole nation turns and says, no, we're not going to do it except for those two, two people. And of course, Moses, right? And, and, and God judges them. So they go back out in the desert and wander for, for more time until that older generation dies. And then they come back and we get to Joshua. And Joshua is where the Israelites come into the promised land, right? We get cool stories like uh, uh, Jericho, where they march around the walls, you know, and the walls come tumbling down. This is a song. My wife knows the song. She knows all the songs. Uh, right? And when we see the, the Israelites come in, and they, they take possession of their, their land. Not completely, though. Not completely. Oh, was my computer. Not completely doing what I want. There we go. Uh, they, they don't take complete control of the land like they're supposed to. And just like, just like in all the other previous books where we see their faith waver, waver a little bit. And Joshua ends with a famous verse in chapter 24. You've probably heard it before. But he's challenging the Israelites. And he says, If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today in whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which they were beyond the river, that's in Egypt, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the Israelites make a really good show. They're like, yeah, we'll do that. That's us. Yeah. And then we get just a little glimmer, just a little hint of what's going to happen in Judges. In verse 19, Joshua says to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And he's, he just... In, he just knows. He's seen these people. He's seen, they haven't even taken the whole land yet, like God told them to. And his skeptical response to the Israelites comes to fruition in Judges. The Israelites have taken a, a bunch of the land, most of it, but not all of it. And in Judges, we see a descent into lawless chaos. The verses that probably sum up Judges the best are found in, in chapter 17 and chapter 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the judges. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Should. Nestled in and amongst the stories of the failure, right, with the judges, what would happen is the, the Israelites would descend into sin, then they'd start worshiping the gods of the Amorites, and then the, the enemies would come in and they'd start beating on the Israelites, and they'd cry out to God, we've sinned, we've sinned. So God would raise up a judge, and that judge would deliver them. And then a judge would die, and they'd go right back. And they'd start sinning. They'd start worshiping other gods. They'd start getting you know, defeated in battle. They'd cry out to God. God would raise up a judge. They'd come back to God. The judge would die. They'd go right back to sin. And you just see that cycle all throughout Judges. And it's a dark time because every man is doing what's right in his own eyes, not in God's eyes. But nestled in and amongst those dark stories, right, we see this, this little book of Ruth. 
beautiful little book of redemption. Right? And, and it's in Ruth um, that we can, we can take comfort, that we can know that even though times are dark, right? Even though we see the things we see happening in our world, even though we see people turning their backs on God wholesale, even though we see that, I, I just got to share this with you. I, there was a poll that went out, and it, it was a poll that said, do you believe in God? Not even, are you a, you know, a Christian? Not even, do you believe in the Bible? Just, do you believe in God? Right? General, general statement. It reached its lowest point this week at 81%. 81% of Americans believe in God. General statement. And then they, they dug down a little bit further, and they broke it out by group and all that stuff, and, and you can look that up. But another question they had, the second, the follow-up question is, do you believe that God can or will, based on your prayers, interact with humanity? Do you think he will? Or is he just kind of sitting up in heaven? 42% of Americans believe that. And I think those numbers are high, to be honest with you. I think they are. But Ruth shows us that even when times are dark, even when, when there, there aren't the majority of people or even a small majority of people believing God is still in control. God is still making things happen. And in Ruth, we get a, a little hint of what will happen in, in 1 Samuel. As we see right at the very end of Ruth, you see a little chapter and it says, and now this is, this is the line of David, right? And it starts with, Ruth and, and her husband, and it moves down, which brings us to 1 Samuel. Right? So the Israelites are in the land. They haven't possessed it. They've spent the last 300 some odd years, maybe a little bit more, 350, going through these cycles, constant cycles of sin, worship other gods, cry out, save. Sin, worship other gods, cry out, save. 350 years of that. And we get to 1 Samuel. Samuel starts in the time of the judges. In actuality, the main character of 1 Samuel, Samuel, is indeed in the role of a prophet or a judge. And as we move deeper into Samuel, we're going to see the Israelites demand a king. They say, all the other nations have a king. We want a king. And God's going to give it to them, for better or for worse. But today, we want to focus on a certain man. Just like Ruth, the, the story of Elkanah focuses in on a small amount of characters. It takes the spotlight off the, the sin and the corruption of the nation, and it finds the small righteous few. Right? And Elkanah gives, us, gives fathers uh, an example of three things that I want to look at today. First, he gives us uh, an example of how to be faithful in a time of extreme wickedness. We'll look at that in verses 3 and 21. He's going to give us an example of how to be loving. But even though we're loving, we're still going to make mistakes. That's going to be in verse 8. And then he's going to give us an example of how to trust and encourage his wife's relationship and his children's relationship with the Lord, verses 21 through 25. So let's, let's jump in. Faithful in a, in a time of extreme wickedness, right? So starting at uh, verse 3, now this man, this is Elkanah, would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And you might be wondering to yourself, well, I thought they were supposed to go to Jerusalem. That's where the temple is, right? They, they go to, that's where you're supposed to go. That has not yet happened, right? King David is going to take Jerusalem. He's going to take it in a battle. And that's where he's going to want to build the temple. But God's going to have Solomon build it. 
and it will be built in Jerusalem, and that is where they're supposed to go to worship. But for now, the tabernacle is set up in Shiloh. That's the, the religious center of their world, right? That's where Eli, the high priest, is, is stationed there. And so yearly, this man would go up from his city to worship and sacrifice, even in and amongst all the wickedness around him, in, in and amongst all of the, the, the idol worship and the worshiping of the other gods, yearly, he stuck to the Torah law. I want to share a few verses with you, and we're going to compare and contrast them a little bit. So I want to start, this is Father's Day, let's go to Ephesians 5, and we're going to go to Ephesians 5, verse 22, not Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Men of the head. Yeah. Be subject to us, right? Let me share another verse with you. Put your finger in there, because we're going to come back to that. But go to uh, Genesis, excuse me, Genesis 3. Genesis 3. And we're going to go to verse 9. Genesis 3, 9. I'll give you a little backstory here. This is where Adam and Eve have eaten of the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? And uh, they their eyes are open. They see sin. So they sow fig leaves for themselves, right? Trying to cover up their sin. And they hear God coming. So they hide. Because you've been hiding from God, right? They hide. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Who ate the, fir the fruit first? It was Eve, right? It was Eve. Get up here and preach, man. Get up here and preach. Men of the head. You're right. Men of the head. Women are subject to men. And if we want to sit up here and we want to say, men in the head, yeah, we're the ones that can be pastors. You have to listen to us. Right? If you want to say those things, you also have to take that too. If we want to take headship, we have to take responsibility. It's very easy to take headship. It's not so easy to take responsibility. I was deployed to a Kuwait. And when we were there, we were out in the middle of the desert. We set up a big cabal, and, and, and um, we, we carried sidearm kits. Right? We had 9 millimeter pistols. And we were instructed to never leave that pistol anywhere out of sight, right? If, if you are not in control of your pistol, you are wrong, okay? So my driver on my tank decides he wants to take a shower. Trust me, I was happy about that. He needed it. But he goes to the shower, and he didn't leave his 9 millimeter with somebody, right? He went to the shower. And he took off, he got undressed, and he set it all right there. The battalion commander decided to take a shower at the same time. He goes in, he sees a 9mm pistol, he finds out whose it is, he takes it, he goes to my commander, and he chews my commander. And then my commander takes it, and he goes to my lieutenant, and he chews on my lieutenant. And then none of these guys even knew Collins was taking a shower, by the way. I didn't even know for that matter. My lieutenant takes it to me, chews on me. And then the poor guy takes it to him and chew on him, right? There was a chain 
that we have to follow. And everybody's responsible. Whether or not he knew what was going on, he should have been taught well enough not to leave that pistol unaccounted for. I won't tell you about the punishment. Sometimes, if you want to know what the punishment was, it was bad. But uh, it was gross. It wasn't bad. I didn't get beat up or anything. It was gross. Uh, we have responsibility. Headship comes with responsibility. Turn back to Ephesians. I told you to keep your finger there. Turn back to Ephesians. We're going to look at, at, at what Paul instructs husbands now. Now, wives, you've got two verses, right? Men, you get six. And that's being generous. The, the next three verses after that kind of have a little bit in there, too. So we, we're going to get some instructions here, guys. Hang on. Here we go. We're the head, right? Ephesians 5, 25 through 30. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Elkanah got this. Do we? Year after year after year after year after year, amidst all that tribulation, amidst all that sin, he said, not me. And he went up and he practiced Torah law. He took his family up there. He didn't just go by himself. He took his family his children watched him as he performed the sacrifice. His children watched him as he worshipped the Lord, as he fulfilled his vows. He was a godly example to his family. He was real. right? We, we talked yesterday in men's Bible study about uh, the falling away of, of the younger generation. Right? And when they asked them, why are you, you know, why, why do you, why don't you, you know the word, you were raised in church. And he said, well, we live with our parents and, and they don't keep anything in there, so why should we? And I don't want to feel guilty about it, so I'm not even going to go to church because I don't want to hear about it. He devoted himself to the Torah law and made sure his family and wives not only saw it happen, but participated in it. If you look back at Ephesians, right? Let's look at this, let's break this down a little bit. Ephesians 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. He did what for the church? He gave himself up for her. This is, a, this is a verse that men like. Right? We like this verse. I'd take a bullet for my wife. Yeah. If, if, if my wife's in front of a car, I'd push her out of the way. Right? That's not what he's talking about there. I mean, to be sure, if your wife's going to get shot, take the bullet, right? We, we would do that. We would, we would push her out of the way of the car. But look at verse 26. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This isn't a, a one-time, really big, huge, audacious thing where you get lots of praise for it. This is a, a, a daily thing. This is, this is something that you do on a regular basis. right? We talked about this before. We talked about justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification, when you admit that you're a sinner, you, you turn to Christ, right? you put your faith in Christ and what he did on the cross, that he died, and was resurrected for your sins, you are justified. Right? You're struck by lightning, that second, you go to heaven. 
but we don't get struck by lightning usually, right? So the rest of our life is sanctification. That's us turning towards Christ. Our lives are, are becoming more and more Christ-like. I'm not the same man as I was last year, and hopefully next year I'm an even better man in God's eyes. And who does that work? To be sure, we have decisions to make. To be sure, we have responsibilities to keep. But every good thing comes from the Lord. Right? And, and, and Christ sanctifies us through our life. He turns us towards him. And men, that's our job for our wives. We are to sanctify our wife. This isn't a one-time thing. This is an ongoing thing. Of having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Men, are you washing your wife with the water of the word? That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such bad thing. But that she would be holy and blameless. That's our goal. We want our wives holy and blameless. If we're not holy and blameless, are they going to be holy and blameless? So we're sanctifying, we're, we're, we're moving in, in, our, in the word, we're, we're renewing our mind in the word, and, and as we are sanctified, we're sanctifying our wife, we're bringing her along with us. And that's not to say that they don't have their own relationship with Christ, and we'll see Elkanah address that later. But we are to play an active role in that sanctification. Ugh, with the head. Yeah, with the head. But that comes with a great responsibility. We are the captain of the ship. If the ship goes down, it's our fault. Right? Yesterday in men's Bible study, we studied Psalm 145.4. Psalm 145.4 says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Right? We see Elkanah taking his his family to the, the, the feast. And at that feast, they would have sacrificed and they would have talked about all the amazing things that God was doing. Is that what we're doing with our children? Are our children able to see God working in our lives? Well, like I told you, the, the kids that are, that are walking away, they're not seeing God working in their parents' life. It's not real to them. We're, one generation is not praising God to the next generation. We're not declaring his mighty acts as a nation, right? Now, Kaino was, was loving but he was not perfect. Have you ever been somewhere with other couples, right? You go to a party and there's like four or five couples there and, and you're all sitting around talking and all of a sudden one of the husbands pops off with something and every other dude in the room goes, oh, pull up, pull up. <laughs> Starting at verse four. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Tanakh, Tanea, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now, kind of was long suffering, right? Year after year after year after year, 
they would go up there and they would endure this, this bickering uh, between the two ladies there. And I didn't mention it before, but I want to mention it now. Um, if, if somebody walked through the door there with two wives, right? Let's say I come to church next week and I'm like, hey, check out my new wife, right? You guys be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's have a chat. Pump the brakes, right? In the Old Testament, though, in the Old Testament, uh, there was a Near Eastern uh, tradition where if the first wife was barren, he would take a second wife because he needed to propagate the line, right? So he's got these two wives, and it, it's it's similar. You, you think of Abraham, right? He, he did that. You think of uh, Jacob when he was tricked into marrying Leah, and then he, he worked seven more years and got Rachel. You know, He's got these two wives, and they're bickering because one of them has a womb that's closed, but the husband loves her more than the one that's giving the children. And they're fighting year after year after year. He's patient. And, and perhaps he says in, in, in a misguided way, am I not better to you than ten sons? I'm guilty of this, right? It's all about me. Am I not better to you than ten sons? I joke around with Allison because we've read First Samuel recently. Every now and then when she gets disgruntled, it's like, am I not better than you? <laughs> Maybe it would have been a little bit better. Maybe it would have been a little bit better if Alcana could have said something more like, are you not better to me than a son? I think we can give him an E for effort at least, right? And obviously Hannah knew that Elkina loved him, and she didn't hold this statement against him. And I glean that little nugget of wisdom from verse 19. I'll let you read that one on your own. Suffice it to say, Hannah's prayers were answered by God and little Samuel's born. Which brings us to our final lesson from Elkina. Elkina trusted and encouraged his wife's relationship with the Lord. Remember, Elkanah's already washing his wife with the water of the word. He's leading his family in accordance to the law of God. But now look at verses uh, 21 through 25 there in 1 Samuel. Then the man, Elkanah, went up to his, with all his household to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah her husband said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him into the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Elkanah and Hannah finally had the son that they always wanted, right? They were ready to start this new life. They finally had it. There was just one problem. Hannah made a vow. Hannah made a vow. She didn't ask Elkanah, right? Maybe when we look at this next week, you'll see she was by herself when she made this vow. She didn't ask if it was okay to give away their son. And to make things even worse, it was customary in, in that time to wean the child at age three, right? We don't see a lot of that. Some people still do that, and, but, but they, they breastfed till year three. So for three years, Elkanah would have seen his son. He would have bounced him on his knee. He would have watched him take his first step. He may have even said a word or two. All the while knowing that because Hannah made a vow, 
he was going to have to give up that son. One last demonstration of his piety, Elkanah gives us a demonstration of encouraging his wife's relationship with God. Right? He could have negated that vow. If you go to, to Numbers 30, and you look at verse 10, it, it has rules there. Oddly enough, it's right after the, the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow, which is what happened with Samuel, it, it happens sometimes before the child is even born, like in Samuel's case. It's a vow to serve God with your life forever. Right? And, and, and so in Numbers 30, it says, however, this is speaking of a woman who's made a vow. However, if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an obligation with an oath, and her husband heard it, but said nothing to her, and did not forbid her, then all her vows shall stand, and every obligation by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband indeed annuls them on the day he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning the obligation of herself shall not stand. Her husband has annulled them, and the Lord will forgive her. He could have said no. He had every legal right to say no. This is my son. I will not allow you to give him away. But he didn't. He understood that his wife made a vow to God. In, in all of our talk about headship and all this, we need to remember that just because there's different roles for men and women in the church, in Christ's eyes, we're all equal. Men aren't better than women in Christ's eyes. Women aren't better than men in Christ's eyes. And I'll kind of realize that. He realized that she had made a vow with God. And he respected that. And he trusted that. The mark of any good leader is understanding when and when not to insert yourself into a situation. When to allow someone to stand on their own and to handle that situation. Elkinah understood that God was working in Hannah's life, and he knew not to get in the way. And because of that, Israel was blessed by God through Samuel. That was a lot to take in today. Covered nine nine books of the Bible, right? There's a lot to take in. This next week we're, we're gonna look at 1 Samuel from Hannah's viewpoint. I, I want you to go home and, and just crack your Bible open and take a look at 1 Samuel. Read, read, read the first couple chapters. Pray that the Holy Spirit will teach you as you read. And then we'll look at it from Hannah's perspective next week. But I want to end today with a challenge to you fathers out there whether you're a father by blood, adoption, or by spirit. I challenge us all to remember Elkina in our relationships. Lead your family year after year after year to Jesus Christ through your actions and not just your words. Love your wife and show your children how a father should lovingly speak to his wife. And when we mess up, and we will own it, fix it. Show your children how to do that. And finally, encourage your wives and your children in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Support and nurture the work that God is doing in their lives and never stop praying for that. I want to pray for you all this week. I want to pray for all the VBS workers and for all the children that God will be bringing to us. And it's a small prayer, so if our worship team wants to go ahead and 
and, and come on down. I caught him by surprise in the last service. And, <laughs> sorry about that, guys. It's a small prayer, but it's a powerful prayer. And it's from Numbers. And it's a blessing. And I want to pray this for our church as we go into this week. I want to pray this for our fathers as you year by year minister to your family. Let's pray. This is from number 6, starting in verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.